0: The difficult, the, the the amount of complications in the world now, and the terrible things that are happening in the world. When we shared this morning our our prayers, our dismay about about uh, uh, painful situations in our lives, people we know who are struggling with illnesses or other kinds of diffi- difficult situations. Most of those situations are situations that are not. Uh, human made, you know, the, the, I mean, illness, you know, who knows. Um, I was thinking when we were thinking of those people this morning and thinking in our mind, amen, may it be so, whatever we do to, uh, really, uh, connect with a prayer. I was thinking, uh, when, uh, when we heard the piece of news that somebody's somebody's uh, having a birthday this week and having their second child this week. And in the middle, Freddie says, I know, in the middle, didn't you hear, feel your mind go, ha-ha? <laughs> you know, that if the Buddha said, in this life of 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes, there are also the 10,000 joys. The, the 10,000 joys are often not what we wake up with in the morning and say, wow. We, we wake up and worry about our child's illness or uh our 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 partner's illness and because we're frightened about that, so the mind grasps onto it. But when we hear about something like that we say, oh, <laughs> uh, I think to myself, in this world of so many difficulties that we can't do anything about because they're just what happened to human beings. Uh, there are all the difficulties that don't just happen to human beings, that are the, the, the sequelae of greed and hatred and animosities over the years, the wars that don't have to happen. Suppose all the wars in the world stopped tomorrow. Suppose people somehow couldn't make a war anymore. Everybody was unwarified, and they couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> and everybody got up and said to, you know, to the, whoever is next door to them, can I help you? What do you need? We, I mean, we have, we, there's, a, there's a lot of resources in this planet, and there's a lot of resources that are being spent killing each other that we could take feeding each other. And I think it would take such a monumental change of consciousness, but there's a way in which I think what we're doing here is we are participating in that monumental transformation of consciousness. My guess, my, my sense is that all of us here start out inclined for the good we wouldn't be here on a wednesday morning there's so many other things to be doing wouldn't be here unless we were interested in looking at our own minds and think how in fact can i turn myself more to the good how can i also make my mind feel at ease in this world of discomfort and i think one of the things that it it has a dual purpose for me at least a dual effect at least two effects listening to what's going on in everybody's life one is I remind myself, I'm not alone. Everybody's got stuff. I don't have that stuff or that stuff, but I have another kind of stuff. But I'm also reminded of how good and kind people are because we care about each other. When we hear, can feel in the room people's empathy, and then we can hear about uh, enterprises like Nancy's enterprise of take seven young people and so many people are involved in getting those seven people here and trained and swimming. It's a huge enterprise. It's not Nancy alone. It's all these other people. And that all these people in a world full of troubles, insurmountable, are doing that small, tiny piece of it. The bodhisattva vow as though suffering is endless. I vow to end it. And when I first heard that, I thought, well, that's a ridiculous. Vow. you know, <laughs> How can, I mean, the, the beings are numberless and suffering is endless. I vow to end it. Well, what kind of hubris, you know, or what kind of nonsense? But really, I end the stuff that I see in front of me and that I can address myself to. And that human beings are amazing in that, that ability to still remember other people and do something. Maybe what we're doing in this... Uh, uh, enterprise of mindfulness training is training ourselves to keep paying attention to what's going on out there as a way of teaching ourselves. You know, I think to myself, uh, when I began uh, being interested in Buddhism and practice 30 years ago, I was really uh, oriented to, I need to learn to meditate. I still, actually teach meditation. I meditate. I think it's a very good thing to keep on balancing the mind and need to have a balanced mind, a certain amount of equanimity in it in order not to be blown away by what's going on. But I think that the, I understand more than ever those teachings and those lineages that say you don't have to meditate. Just open your eyes. Look around. Look what's going on around you. Just how can you not see what's what what really is the true situation? Maybe we don't always tell ourselves what's going on around us. We meet people in the supermarket, we say, How are you? It's fine, fine. How are you? Fine. But everybody is carrying around a whole mindful of concerns and worries and and pains and one of the things that we have to do here is we have a little chance to tell each other these are the things I'm carrying around so that we I can feel, and I think you as well, I'm not alone, and everybody does it. That's the message. You, know? you don't have to give up. People are incredibly <laughs> resilient. Where do I want to start? I was going to start with... that doesn't matter. I restarted this ten times in my mind because I kept finding... I started out by finding an article... In a recent Shambhala Sun, probably the last one, that's about um, that's called Are We Born to be Kind? And it's a book review. It's a book review of three books about kindness. So you remember that the Dalai Lama has been saying for years, my religion is kindness. Mm. And uh, I noticed that here's the article in the Shambhala Sun. On the back side, not having anything to do with that article, is here's a picture of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And uh, every time I see his uh, face, now maybe it's just me, but I think he has a very sweet face. <laughs> and uh, all over the world now, there are images of the Dalai Lama in places where people are not Buddhist, I, I think. That it has become an iconic image like the Coca-Cola script. <laughs> all over the world, you see that script. <laughs> And it says something, you know it says, drink iced Coca-Cola in whatever <laughs> language. Um, Mickey Mouse ears. All over the world, people know what's Mickey Mouse because it's one, it's one of the most trans-cultural images there are. I think that pictures of um, the Dalai Lama, he signs his letters, by the way, Tenzin Gyatso, Buddhist monk. Anyway, that, that that's a just... Uh, And he's, I guess, the 14th Dalai Lama. But images of him like that, or just smiling like that, are meaningful to people. They use it to advertise perfume, to advertise all (laughs) kinds of things, because people look at it and they get a feeling, ah, there's a way to be that's good. They don't have to be Buddhists or anything, that that the sense that one gets from looking at him or from having heard about him is that there's a way to live in the middle of a turmoiled world without a turmoiled mind. That's an amazing, that's an amazing premise. It's really that that, that the mind could be peaceful. That his answer to the question years ago, what are you going to do, some journalist asked him, When you retire, what do old Dalai Lamas do? I don't actually know that old Dalai Lamas can retire. I think they have to die on the job. But he's been talking about retiring. And uh, he said, I think I'll probably find some beautiful monastery, a little monastery somewhere to sit in, probably in China. China has some beautiful monasteries. So you think to of ah you know how did he do that piece of transformation but what what we connect with i think when we say ah is that there's a way in the middle of all of this challenge not to be seduced into reactivity not to disturb the natural peace of mind i uh, i think i brought this picture last week this is not at all in the order I meant to do this I brought this picture last week I made a bigger picture of it so I could pass it around a little bit but here's a picture of um, Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree on the night of his uh, enlightenment and so this is a this is a really an archetypal image in Buddhism this is the Buddha sitting down and what you see I'll pass it around is he is besieged by all the forces of Mara, all the mind-confusing forces, all the things that could really seduce the mind into uh, not being present, captivated into thoughts of the past or the future or dreams or fears. If you look at it closely, you'll see right over here there are uh, warriors coming in from both sides with... Flaming dragons and swords and arrows and uh, uh, attractive images that are meant to be, uh, all kinds of erotic seductions. And there he is sitting serene in the middle of it. It's really a lovely picture. I'll give it to Phyllis and she'll pass it around. But I was I, when I was making that picture yesterday and 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 uh, transferring it onto that paper out of the book, I was thinking it really remains whether or not it actually happened that he actually sat down under a tree and that actually in one night he became illuminated, which is a great story. Whether that actually happened historically just in that way is not so important to me as the meaning of the whole picture as a possibility for human beings, that we could, so to speak, sit down in the middle of our lives and have all this turmoil happening to us And we could be able to say, you know what, I see you, all your stuff, and I'm all right. I can just make the decision from this step and this step. I'll do what's next, and I'll do what's next, and I'll do the right next thing. All of this stuff is not going to pull me into rage or outrage or despair or cynicism. I'm keeping on. I actually thinking about that more and more. Do you know in the story that goes usually with that uh, with that picture, he, um, he said to, after he's attacked by all these different kinds of images, upsetting, seductive, he sa- said that he took one hand and put it on the earth and he said, I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. Mm-hmm. I really think that is such a great line. I think the line, I am not afraid, is probably the most, the best line we can say in our whole life. I'm not afraid. This is happening to me, and I'm not afraid. Think of all the things that we get to know. Okay, I'm not afraid. I'm, I'm you know, I'm shaking. I'm awake. Now what should I do? The thing with fear is I think we have an automatic fear reaction because we're mammals. And and animals fundamentally and we should have an automatic fear reaction you know if there's a big noise we duck under something you know we know how to we have to stop short. I am still, if I have to brake, all of a sudden in my car, flinging my arm out next to me. We've had, we've had seatbelts and airbags for decades, and I usually am driving alone. My children are 50 years old, but if I stop the car fast, my arm goes out. That doesn't yours? <laughs> That's what we do. That's what mammals do. We take cover and we protect. But I think after the initial take cover and protect, you think, what am I going to do? Did you see the image on the television somewhere over the weekend of a seven-year-old boy that was rescued out of the rubble? There were so many images of people rescued in Haiti and all of them I went. I tried to find it on YouTube yesterday, and it wasn't there. It's was probably because it was broadcast on CNN, and they probably have a something a priority on it or something. But it was it was it was replicated in newspapers, and some what somebody sent it to me as a video, a little video on CNN, and just as these uh, rescue workers cleared out this rubble and reached in. And they, you see them lifting out this little seven-year-old boy in a bright yellow shirt that's been there for seven days in the rubble, no food, no water. And they lift him up, and they lift him up, and he's got this huge smile on his face, and he flings his arms out like this, and he's got a big smile on his face. And, they, and it's all in one swoop. They pick him up. And he looks like, the you know, it's, it's kind of the victory motion that, that cyclists make when they win the Tour de France. So they come <laughs> over runners, when they win the triathlon or something, they come over the finish line, and they do ta-da, like that. So here's this little kid, and they lift him up, and he goes, da, with a big smile. Like, you know, where were you? And none of that, you know? Ta-da, I'm out, you know, he's here. And the whole group of people around are all applauding and yaying. And so I was at home when, when I saw this on my, on my computer and there were two other people in the house. And so I said, come, come, you have to see this. And I do back the video and I play it again. And people are yaying and we're crying because you know the body has to do something. You know, it doesn't know what to do with itself. You know Sometimes when you get so happy you don't know what to do, you cry. It's like the body doesn't know what to do with itself. It has an emotional response. And it laughs and it cries and it does all those things, and that I think is such a a description of the potential of human beings. I don't know that little boy and nobody else, but that someone was wrenched from the jaws of death. You know, is our story. Somebody was saved. We are all in the precarious position of being in a life, and when so many people say try and are successful at saving a life that could be saved, a young life that can be saved, everybody gets happy about it. It's an amazing thing, that empathy. I learned something um, this week. I've been thinking about it because in this article, there's an article about three books about kindness. Uh, One of them is called Born to be Good, that we're wired for kindness. It's interesting to think about... um, you could think about wired for uh, survival of the fittest, me first. But I think what the author is trying to make the point that wasn't so clear in this article, was that uh, certainly in this era, uh, fittest, in, in the sense of, you know, millennia ago, may be kindest, you know that uh, at this point, in a very crowded, very complex very multi-ethnic world the only way that the planet's going to survive is if we have enough kindness in the genes to really uh, to go from being me first to us first you know all of us we have to all survive together not you know I I read it a bunch of times I I think that the book probably says that then this article makes clear but the, actually the gist of the article, which was interesting, so I want you to think about it. I was going to ask you to think about it because I've been thinking about it for days and I can't, it's like a maze. I come to the end of it and I can't get out of it. And I've tried, okay, I'll think about it this way and I'll try to get out of it. That the article is about, makes a, a point, that one of the books makes the point that the view about kindness has changed in the world that in ancient times, in 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 Greek times, for instance, time of the Greek Empire, uh, from where we get the word philanthropy, philanthropia, is really love of um, love of people, taking care of them, uh, and it was said that uh, ideas of altruism and benevolence have come to seem in modern times as merely sentimental, soft-minded, and unrealistic. Whereas they used to be, kindness was humanity's greatest delight. Somebody said that. Kindness was humanity's greatest delight. Then talking about whether it still is or whether uh, views of it have changed, this person speculates that John... Thomas Hobbes, about whom I don't know a lot, who was a philosopher in England in the 1600s, said, um, Christian kindness is a psychological absurdity. Um, People, he said, are selfish beasts who cared for nothing but their own well-being. Human existence was a war of everyone against everyone else. Selfishness and aggression were transformed from moral vices, which they had been before, to psychological truths. That's a very interesting thing to think about. Do we still think that they are psychological truths, every person for themselves, or do we still think of them as um, immoralities, selfishness? And then talking about, uh, uh, the third book was about uh, different... um, Tremendous events uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in the world, natural events, or not-so-natural events like 9-11 or uh, the earthquake. Wait, 9-11. They had a list of events, tremendous events. Uh, the earthquake in Mexico City in 1985, the 1917 explosion in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, Hurricane Katrina. That particular author that wrote that book, where she researched all of those big events and discovered that there were two kinds of responses, that there were the responses that we see on the television of people going and helping out, also see some of the opposite kind of responses of... uh, people becoming aggressive or looting. or What this particular author says is how you behave in these situations depends on whether you think your neighbors or fellow citizens are a greater threat than the havoc wrought by a disaster or a greater good than the property in houses and stores around you. Often the worst behavior in the wake of a calamity is on the part of those who believe that others will behave savagely and that they themselves are taking defensive measures against barbarism. From earthquakes shattered San Francisco in 1906 to flooded New Orleans in 2005, innocents have been killed by people who believed or asserted that their victims were criminals and they themselves were protectors of a shaken order. What you believe matters. So I read that a bunch of times because I I tried to think about whether it's what you believe, or whether it's um, genetics, whether you whether we're born altruistic and we can't do terrible things, that even if things are bad around us, I often think about a book, um, a book called "Rescuers." Pretty sure that's the name of it. That was written by my fr- a friend of mine, it was written by Malka Drucker and her partner, uh, <laughs> who's a photographer. and she and her partner went to uh, interviewed dozens really of uh, uh, rescuers of Jews during the period of 1940, 1945 in uh, places where they would have been otherwise rounded up and sent to be killed, and at pain of their own life, at really risk of their own life, hid them in their basements or in their attics or in their haylofts. So Malco went. These people were then old now, but went through all the records of who it was and traced them down, and they went and visited and took portraits of these people and interviewed them, and I remember reading her book and uh, discovering that they weren't at all alike, these people, they were a cross-section of society. They weren't all known to be, uh, they weren't all clergy, for instance, or they weren't all the uh, pillars of the society that uh, some of them were, they're just all different (laughs) kinds of people. What they had in common was they all had the same answer to the question, why, at peril and risk to yourself and your family, did you take these people in? And they all said, I couldn't not. Mm-hmm. Now, when I just said that, did you get goosebumps? That's a very interesting thing, goosebumps. Now, seriously, I'm serious about this. Now, serious, I'm reading about because I, I, I learned a new word. No, no, no laughing at me on that. I read a new word this week about, I'll have to read it to you. About different kinds of emotions. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Here it is. Goosebumps are the, are one kind of emotion. So that's why. Why do they happen, Nancy? I mean, you're the doctor. You know that. Why do they happen? Because it's your hair stands on end, isn't it? Yeah, it's a physiologic thing. It's a physiologic thing, but why does it? Is it like fear, or what is it? it the skin tightens, which is why you get goosebumps. But why? It holds the warmth in your body for the vital organs when your skin tightens. You don't dissipate as much. Heat. Really? Is that why it holds the warmth in? It's got to be... Because animals, their hair stands on end like a dog when they get frightened, or cats, the hair stands on end. This is about people studying emotions uh, in, in, this, in recent modern times. Talk about... Um, Ekman, Paul Ekman in, uh, in uh, uh, the Bay Area, I think now in Stanford, formerly in Ber- Berkeley. Uh, Paul, Paul Ekman, who is the co-author of the Dalai Lama of Emotional Awareness, mm-hmm. have tested the hypothesis of William James that the primary role of the body in our emotional life echoes the experiences of many practitioners of yoga throughout the centuries. For Henry James, the topography of emotion maps onto our viscera. Every subjective state, from political rage to spiritual rapture to contentment, one feels that the sound of children playing is registered in our own distinct body reverberation. Isn't that interesting? You think about the contentment you feel when you hear children playing. Can you imagine a scene where you're maybe sitting in the dentist's office and the window is open and you're not at all comfortable, but outside in the play yard there are children playing and you hear them and you feel better. Why, do we th- why is that? You know? Is it true? Do you feel better when you hear children playing outside? It's a familiar thing. We, we feel also when you're in a supermarket and you're going down an aisle and you hear a child shrieking somewhere because it doesn't feel good. Don't you feel bad? Yeah. Yeah. think about maybe I could go help out its mother or something. Autonomic nervous system is what they're talking about. Then they talk about this. Is what I thought about. Henry James's thesis inspired other studies of the autonomic nervous system. So here's one level. It says this is when you blush, you don't think about blushing. Now I'll blush. You know that? I mean, you just blush. But you so the blush is what it's it's um, excitement, huh, <coughs> What more what what oh,
1: I just said involuntary.
0: it is involuntary, but what are the things that make us blush embarrassment, embarrassment, embarrassment. Compliments. compliments, what else, okay, tears, well, but sometimes you te- you cry because you're happy, you know. Goosebumps. So that just the goosebumps are right in there. You don't say, now I'll have goosebumps. <laughs> but you know. um, Swelling, feeling in the chest. Those studies reveal that our emotions, even those higher sentiments, like sympathy and awe, are embodied in our viscera. So I was thinking about what's a higher sentiment? Like fear is not maybe a higher sentiment. Fear is a a sort of instinctive response. But um, sympathy, or awe. Empathetic joy. Empathetic joy. Uh, They had one other, then they said ethical emotions. Ethical, can you, then they gave two. What do you think is an ethical emotion according to them? It's just a thesis anyway. respect. They didn't put that, but respect would be an ethical emotion, wouldn't it? Outrage? Maybe, yeah. yeah. As I, you know, and I, and I, I'm surprised too, because all of these have been, outrage is different, but, you know, outrage is maybe, um, maybe, uh, maybe outrage no, needs a special category, because sometimes you think about outrage as, you know, being part of anger, but outrage as, um, oh, indignation, this shouldn't be happening, mm-hmm. uh, now I'll do something about it, because, or not even this shouldn't be happening, but um, something needs to be done here, what should I do, um, I can't think of the word better than, indignant is something else also, because it makes me better, hmm, but what is it when you look at Haiti? Somebody's going to Haiti to deliver babies. Somebody's somebody's son is going.
1: My daughter's son left this morning with a group, a um, group that um, went into the Ache um, after the tsunami. And
0: That's fantastic. So this is your grandson who's going. Yeah,
1: my son-in-law.
0: Your son-in-law. He's a physician.
1: Um, he's not, but he's had a lot of. He's done a lot of work in midwifery, and he's been a part of this group called the <coughs> Alliance. They build. Um. They build um these containers to offer emergency services. A lot of women are having babies on the street in mean, the mm-hmm. right now. No medical care. Yeah. Mm. So I have a dual feeling of alarmed for him and his health. And there's such a high rate of AIDS, um, HIV infection in Haiti. Yeah. And the fact that he's going to be exposed to so much blood is just um, yeah very s- frightening for me. Yeah. He has two small
0: children. Yeah. And he can't not, you know. He can't not. Um, the thing about so one of the things that remains in my mind because oh, <laughs> it's the everlasting topic because it has been the discussion really of philosophy since the beginning of time. Are we essentially good or essentially bad or are we not essentially anything? Or are we uh, a, 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 a blackboard to get written on? I think the geneticists that I am now talking to who, not by masses, but when I meet one, I talk to them, I said, you know, I bet someday they're gonna find altruism genes in the genome. And they said, yeah, I think so, you know. That some people actually are inclined in that direction. Why do some people look for careers where they're doing that? Because they feel good helping other people. And doesn't mean that everybody else is not altruistic or doesn't care, but it's not that they are not so pushed about it as other people. And on the other hand, the, this is why I couldn't get out of my maze the whole weekend, Well, I kept thinking, well, I, I have always been teaching here, as a matter of fact. You've probably heard me say, when the mind is clear, we behave impeccably. I, it's a wonderful thing to believe that if we really look out there... And we think, wow, look at this particular suffering in the middle of a world of suffering that I could help address, and I'll feel better if I help address it. That's what mine does when it's clear, and yours also, I think, when it's clear. But maybe not everybody's. How do I, you know, I don't know that for sure. I've been reading a book called The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Are you reading that? It's great. It's wonderful. It's wonderful, Uh, and in it, uh, in it, there are part of it are uh, it's all letters, letters from a British journalist to people living on the island of Guernsey in the Channel Islands, that was occupied by the Germans during the Second World War, and in their letters to her, they recount some of the things that the invading troops did while they were there. And it was terrible. And not all of them were terrible. Some individual invaders were helpful. But as a group, there was a a mass uh, alliance of people who didn't say no to doing atrocious behaviors. And you think, well, what does that mean about the nature of the mind that can get swept up? That's actually when I decided to... um, uh, print out that picture of the Buddha sitting again, I was thinking about, I wonder if has something to do with how stimulated and how frightened we can get and what we might do when we're frightened. Is the nature of everyone's consciousness essentially inclined to the good? That's really the central question of this article. Are, is it inclined to the good? And when it isn't, it's just gotten confused. Are some people actually born... Inclined for the not good, um, more inclined for the not good than the good. Seems like there's a the, a way of um, uh, what's the word for it? Schadenfreude, people who take delight in other people's misfortune. It's a, it's a kind of a when we think about what? What do you mean? You know, it's like a weird thing. Who would want right away? Right away. Actually, I'm not sure that he says that. That's why I gave a lot. I'm not sure. I, I do know that uh, fundamental in Theravada Buddhism is a discussion of um, finding and eliminating the roots of evil, which are greed, hatred, and delusion. And so I think that the idea is not that we're bad, but we have these inclinations that, um, we have inclinations that can get out of control Because you think about the inclination to do for yourself, the inclination to take for yourself. A certain amount of that inclination is a good thing. You know, it's been discussed in the Talmud over and over again. You know, what if you didn't have an inclination to build for yourself? You wouldn't wouldn't make a family. You wouldn't reproduce. You wouldn't take care of your own kin. You know, you need a certain amount of inclination. Otherwise, human beings as a civilization wouldn't have lasted. That gets out of control every once in a while. People think, I have to have more than everybody else. Not only just taking care of my kin, I have to take better care of them. Yeah? Um, I had a bit of a drive this morning, and KPFA had an interview with Jeremy Rifkin. Oh, wonderful, yeah. Empathetic
1: Civilization, Uh which is really all about this. Yeah, yeah. He says it's kind of a higher-order response, Mm -hmm. and people like Hobson, you know, that we've we're evolving to recognize our interdependence yeah it talks about mirror neurons which yeah you just automatically react yeah yeah when you you know are engaged with something right you you don't have any control over that that's
0: biological well that i mean i'm very excited to hear that jeremy rifkin was also interviewed by liz st john i know of uh radio alice because she's my daughter and uh yes (laughs) and uh and he'll be on the radio with her this sunday i'm pretty sure you have to get up early in the morning radio 97 3 97 3 97 3 fm okay radio alice 97 3 radio alice 97 3 what (laughs) <laughs> Did she know that I knew you, Nancy? No, no. <laughs> That's so far out. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've used the
1: word confusion earlier, and I'm still going back to your question of why the goosebumps, and um, I think the how is the physiologic reaction part, but then why? Why do we have the same physiologic response for fear,
0: for awe, and for cold? Yeah.
1: and I just think there's something in it. sort of the same way why do we react differently one person looks and sees an opportunity to help and another person
0: looks and sees an opportunity right. to harm right. um, and it's just it's confusing it is confusing, that's why I wanted us to talk about it about why, because most of us I think I don't know most of us um Goodness, I wish we had uh, another hour. I was thinking this morning, there was a period of time that, oh, 20 years ago, when there was, uh, uh, there were all kinds of alerts in the general culture about you should put in a supply of, um, uh, not stuff for an earthquake. I mean, stuff for an earthquake is a good idea, put in water and whatever and, and, and a first aid kit and some stuff to get you through if the power is out but the idea that you should put in stores of food for some terrible eventuality where there's havoc in the community so that you could survive. And I, I, I decided immediately that I wouldn't do that because however much stuff I put in supplies of, if something happened, I would have to invite my whole neighborhood in and to share it with me immediately. And so I'd have one day, you know, it, it would last one day, all my <laughs> supplies. So it would be a ridiculous endeavor to put in a year's worth of stuff for myself. But maybe not, you know, and I don't think I'm a particularly... But, you know, I thought to myself, who could do this? Who could stay in their little house with their supplies if their people all around them didn't have them? Huh? You party. <laughs> <Made a> party, <laughs> yeah. You know,
1: I think back during the height of the Cold War... Lot of us in here probably remember, there was this national debate about fallout shelters. Mm, yeah. Would you allow your neighbor to come in to your fallout shelter if we were bombed by nuclear war? You know, if we were in the middle of a nuclear war. And I was probably in my early teens at the time, and I was kind of absorbed in this whole question. And I realized that it doesn't matter that ultimately you know, if we have a disaster, we're all part of it. Yeah. And that whether or not, I, I was appalled by those people who would say, no, I'd shoot my neighbor at the door. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And there were a lot yeah. of people who felt yeah. that way. Yeah. And, and it was just um, the confusion. And then ultimately, I thought to myself, well, you know, if it's going to be that bad, then what difference does it make right.
0: anyway? Right. We're all in it together, and I guess you know we
1: do what we have to do to help. Or
0: yeah, I, I just yeah, yeah. Somebody else is going to say. Well, maybe it had, does have to do with what's kin, what's family, what's connection. Yeah. And if you've had the experience, and I don't know
1: how far it is back in the utero, but I mean, if you've had the experience of being connected,
0: something you see, it's something you know, see, what, your body. What, remind me of your name. Liz. Liz. See, I was thinking this morning, and reading all these, and thinking about the Buddha, and what did he say? I was thinking about, it's been really standard mainstream psychology thinking, and I think by and large true, to understand the, the conversion towards being a social animal as happening in the best in the best of all possible worlds, to in the second and third year of life. In the first year of life, you don't expect babies to be altruistic. And uh, you don't say... Uh, maybe two-year-olds in preschool, toddlers, become alarmed when another one of them is crying. They are alerted to that. But by and large, uh, you don't try to teach two-year-old babies to restrain themselves from impulses. If They pick up something that they want to open your purse and dump it out. You say, no, I need that, and you take it away. But you don't say, that's mine, and here's your purse, because the concept of mine and not mine is not something that a one-year-old has. But it is something that a two-year-old has, and a two-and-a-half-year-old has. And by that time, you say to them, no, that's mine. This is yours. This is Tommy's. This is not yours. And at this point, even they like what's yours those Tommy's. They also like you if you've been taking good care of them. And on behalf of them liking you and not feeling like they've crossed you, they say, all right, they restrain themselves. This is sort of mainline thinking. The same thing you say from now on, all toilet functions happen in the toilet, not wherever you feel like and in, in, in just on the moment. You say, I have to go, and we take you. And that's not convenient for an 18-month-old or a 2-year-old who's been just wherever you are. So, but you say you can't do it where it's convenient now. Now you do it where it's mutually convenient. <laughs> and I give you big applause when you do. And it's a, it's a, it's a psychological and a neurological uh, leap forward to say, all right, I feel like, but I won't do it. The whole thing that's the difference between human beings and reptiles is we have a big space in between I feel like and I'm doing it you know and in between I feel like and wait a minute this might not be cool this might not have this not, might not be approved of people won't like me I don't think that babies uh, three-year-olds share because they feel so great about it they share because it's generally f- smiled on and encouraged and then later on according to psychology if it's right You incorporate those values, and you say, now we'll all share. I remember my children being so surprised after years of of hearing from me and from their father that we do it this way because it's fair, and getting into situations as they got older in school where it wasn't so fair, they'd come home and say, this isn't right, and this and this is going on. I'd say, well, I can't do anything about it. And they'd say, it's not fair, though, and it wasn't. And they have to say, well, in this world, there are things that aren't fair, but fair is good. Fair is good, so how we bring people up, which people that, which we have, I think that most of us can't do. On, well, here's the thing. When I used to teach psychology in the College of Marin, this was a question that I asked people. I said, imagine that you are standing on 4th and B Street in San Rafael at three o'clock in the morning and uh, there's nobody in the street and inexplicably, the whole window falls out of the front of whatever the name of the jewelry store was on 4th and B. And also, inexplicably, the uh, alarm doesn't go off. What do you do? And, then, and you know who knows if people had another thought, but everybody had variations on, you look for a police car, you run around the corner to the police station, you tell them the window fell out of the jewelry store. Nobody said you scoop up all that stuff and put it in your pocket and <laughs> run away with it. Now, maybe a few people thought that, but no, But at least they knew not to say it. That that's <laughs> but I actually think most people don't think that. What did you think when I just said that to you? Wouldn't you run around the corner, look oh, for the police? Oh, Dial 911, 911 on the cell phone. <laughs> but I think it, it depends on what community Depends on what, what community that's right. I, I, I think, honestly, I don't think there's one way of saying it, whether it's nature or nurture. I think it's both. I think it's both. I think and, it's both. And I can say, from my own experience, I was adopted as a baby, and I grew up with my parents in such a way to be a certain person. And then Susan came into my life at 20, and then I found out I had all these behaviors that were more like her. Well, I didn't
1: know her until I was 20, 21. How did that happen?
0: Yeah. So I have the, you know, the example of my own life to, to almost prove that to me. Yeah. yeah. You know, being a new mom I can see you know that very clearly because of my own experience. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's, it's most definitely both. I think it's both. I think it's the neighborhood you live in. I think it's a degree of hardship that you live under. I mean, we can't know actually because 4th and B is in the middle of Marin yeah. where we all have enough to more or less and eat. what if you're starving and it was a what, grocery store? And what if said, you're Jean Valjean eat. and in the classic story of Les Miserables, where you get hounded because you stole bread, but your family is hungry? Yeah. Um, just a, another book. I wrote it some little mm-hmm. sentences back, The Philosophical Baby. I'm only on page 27 mm-hmm. of it, but it's basically saying, and they've done tests for children three and under. Yeah. So I, th- I thank you very much. I see we have two minutes, so maybe in the two minutes I'll tell you two things that come to mind. I think it's nature and nurture, so, th- you know, that's a very short summary, but I think it is, and I think one of the functions of uh, children's stories is we tell them morality tales, so that Horton hatches the egg and he has a lot of patience and discipline, and Ferdinand the Bull does not get agitated when people provoke him. And he gets to live a happy life, smelling the flowers. And if you read any of the Jataka tales about that, are old Buddha stories about the Buddha in a different form before, uh, before he was even a human being, as the king of the monkeys, who gave his life to save all his monkeys because he loved them so much. And when the king uh, of of that particular community it's a long story saw how that how beloved the monkey king was he also began to love and give his life for his whole community so i think that the stories that we tell people as a culture that what who's our heroes makes a big difference and i just thought i'd tell you a sweet story just to because we're at 11 o'clock i met a woman through a website through a website yesterday Um, I'm going to tell you another website here is a website I hope you will write this down and look at it is a website called spirituality and practice and I got to know them recently because they do online courses and they invited me to do an online course and I'm in the middle of writing it I'm almost finished with it and I love it it's coming out really good (laughs) so I, I invite you to look on the website of spirituality and practice and you'll see that Sylvia Boorstein is teaching a meta, a loving kindness course starting in mid-March, and the people who sign up will get three emails a week for four weeks. And I, I I'm really so pleased. It's been a really a challenge for me to take <coughs> the teaching of meta and put it into twelve segments at, with homework and practice. And anyway, I, you know, I, I hope you'll look on it and. Uh, send the link to a million people. Okay, That's number one, I really do. Uh, so, um, but also through that, I am now in contact with two other websites. One of them is called awakeisgood.com, which is a very good website. I know the woman who writes, it's a blog. She writes a blog every day. And it's a very informative blog. In her blog, she's in the middle of leading people through a 28-day practice period. And every day for 28 days, she has really good stuff on the blog. You start off the day well. She put me in touch with another woman whose website is shinethedivine.com. It's <laughs> all oh, one word, spirituality and practice. Shine the Divine, awake is good. The Shine the Divine is uh, Laura. And Laura was diagnosed with MS <laughs> last February. And it seems to be quite a seriously, progressively fast illness in her. It isn't in everybody. And she is writing the most upbeat spiritual approach to making the most out of life. Anyway, she sent me this this morning. So she said, um, we had a little conversation on the email yesterday about how moments of goodness open the heart. Oh, by the way, when you sat and you thought about your own generosity before you sat, was that better, your meditation? Did it help you at all? No difference? No difference? Some difference? A little bit better, maybe? I thought it was a great instruction. So Laura and I had a little exchange on the email yesterday about how when you hear about goodness, your own or somebody else's, it picks you up. She said, I don't watch TV unless I'm visiting at a relative's home We never signed up for cable TV when we moved to New Hampshire 10 years ago, and we can't get any stations without it. (laughs) Recently, I even stopped listening to NPR in the morning because the noise is too much for my MS brain to have that going on and assist my husband in getting the girls off to school. This morning, however, my husband had it on before I came downstairs. I made my tea. I sat for a moment and listened. There was a story first about how food is being poorly distributed throughout the camps in Port-au-Prince. The stronger people are pushing ahead of the weaker people and getting to the food rations first. Then they mentioned that there is food available in the markets, of course, but money is also running out for those who had any to begin with, so that's not a solution. Then there was a story of goodness. A small pizza shop that used to sell food that was too expensive for average folks who lived in that neighborhood is giving meals away for free. They are feeding 1,000 people a day. Outside of the camps, neighbors are helping neighbors, sharing the sparse food that they have with one another. There are always, always pockets of goodness. So for myself, that wasn't only a, um, a nice story about the pizza shop giving out 1,000 meals a day. That's lovely. But the, 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 uh, the reminder, there are always, always pockets of goodness. I'm supposed to put a title on every one of these talks, because they go up on the, into cyberspace with Dharma Seed. So we will call this, there are always, always pockets of goodness. Because really, we started with Nancy's, uh, Nancy's swimmers from Alcatraz to the city. So I hope you go to Nancy's film on the 7th. I hope you come on Monday to listen to poetry and music. I hope you take very good care of yourself until we meet again in March.
1: I just mentioned also James Barris is doing um, Saturday all day. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.